Thanks very much, Lexi. Um, if you could have your Bibles out, um, and if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some in the back. Um, the reason why is because um, uh, I really see a part of my job uh, in preaching as to get you into the Bible and get you to see how amazing um, this uh, this word is. Um, and I, um, I, I know that you'll have an easier time following um, if you have a Bible with you and can look uh, with me as I go through it. But as you get your Bibles out, let's uh, pray that God will speak to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a speaking God, um, that you love to speak to us, and we thank you that your words are powerful. And we pray that none of my words will come out, but whatever these words are, that they will become yours. And we, we pray that your words then will become part of our life. And we pray that as we live in your word, that we will bear fruits that will, that will bring you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, in his famous book, God Delusion, Richard Dawkins railed against um, the Yahweh God of the Old Testament. He wrote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character um, in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, uh, petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infant, infanticidal, um, a genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomania, uh, uh, that, that's a really difficult word, megalomaniacal, <laughs> sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Yeah, wow. I mean, I think, though, I think Professor Dawkins' rhetoric gets to a lot of different people um, because these are actually some of the things that we have thought ourselves. That as we read the Bible, we, we think, well, isn't, isn't God going overboard here? Why does God get so angry? Especially as we look at our text today in Judges 2, why does God get so angry? Why does he kill so many people? Why does he seem so jealous? It refers, our text refers to God's anger at least three times. Verses 12, 14, and 20. God is angry with the Israelites. In fact, in verse 14, we're told that God gives the Israelites over to the hands of the enemies, that as they go out to fight these battles, that God is against them because of his anger. I think one of the things that we think to ourselves is because if God is actually loving, how can God also be angry? Why, why, why would God be so angry if God truly loved us? But even as you hear these words, I'm sure you can think of some answers yourself as well. But because if you've loved anybody, um, if you've ever, if you've had any children, you know um, that that is not that that that's not true. That anger and love cannot coexist. Um, I was listening to a pastor saying something about how how he felt um, when his daughter was going astray. Um, he, she was, uh, he was really sure that she was having premarital sex, um, hanging out with a wrong crowd, um, that, that she was not doing well in school, um, disrespectful to her parents. And he was describing how he felt when she would go out in the evening without calling, without letting uh, them know where he was, uh, where she was, and what she, what she was doing, and how angry he felt, not because he didn't care, but because he cared so much 
about her. Of course, we get angry, especially with whom we love. But maybe what Dawkins means, and what maybe what some of you uh, think, is that um, that if God loves us, that God wouldn't be angry like this. That this seems out of proportion, in some ways out of character, to God's love. Um, because um, I, I think that's what Dawkins means when he describes God as a malevolent, capriciously malevolent bully. But I wish Dawkins would take out a Bible and then read it uh, himself and see what God is really like. Because that's not the God that I see in the Bible. And that's not the God that's described in Genesis chapter 2. Because God in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament is never this emotional, out-of-control being. Human beings do stupid things in our anger, something that's out of our character. We might say something, we might do, you know, we might even hit somebody because we're so angry, because the anger has taken part uh, of control over, over, over us. But God is never angry like that. The God is never out of character like that. One scholar said that God's anger is not so much emotion, but it's this settled opposition of his holiness against sin. Settled opposition, this constant opposition of his holiness against sin. Let me tell you what I mean. In Deuteronomy and other places, God through Moses lays out perfectly um, what, uh, what would happen if people sinned. If you ever forget Yahweh God and, and follow other gods and worship and bow down, then I, I testify against you that you will surely be destroyed. Deuteronomy eight nineteen. God tells uh, the Israelites, what is going to happen if they sin against him? Actually, in this chapter, in, the, in, in verses 2 and 3, he reminds them again of what, the, 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 what, his, uh, what his words were. That, um, that if they, uh, they continue to uh, disobey him, that they, uh, if they didn't uh, drive out uh, Canaanites, that they would become snares and traps for them. And that would be a sign of his judgment. And at the end of verse 15... He says that, uh, the narrator says, God punished them just as he had sworn to them. Out of his character, he told them what's going to happen. And his anger is foretold, and it's settled anger. And God's anger is also a just anger, isn't it? Because just look at what people are doing here in this passage. After Joshua, the whole generation of Israelites grow um, not knowing the Lord in verse 10. And this is what uh, people didn't, not that they didn't know about him, but they didn't know the Lord. They didn't have this relationship um, with God. And then they do evil things in Yahweh's eyes and they devote themselves to, uh, to, to idols. And then well, uh, God then uh, punishes them by giving them over to the hands of the raiders as God had sworn to do. But then God's moved out of compassion. He raises judges and he saves them in the hopes that they would return to him to, to see that God is at work. At, uh, but then... Uh, we're told that this is, uh, they don't return to God, but they actually grow worse, according to verse 19. People, uh, Judges, Book of Judges has been described as having this cycle, cycle of people growing bad and doing idolatrous worship, and then uh, God giving them over to uh, the, the raiders and, and, the, and the people, uh, and then they cry out and they repent to God, so God raises judges, 
And then uh, the judges die, and a few uh, years later, they forget what happened again. So that's the cycle, but it's not just a simple cycle in judges. And you will see in the rest of the book how this happens again and again, one judge after another. But actually, it's a downward spiral. They grow worse and worse after uh, judge one judge after another. So um, they, God controlled anger against sin. He judges them. Um, but then... Uh, you're thinking maybe, well, this is fine for the Israelites, but how about the, uh, the Canaanites? This seemed like completely out of um, character for God. Why does God command the Israelites to um, completely obliter- obliterate um, the Canaanites? And so this is just a little excursus I want to go into, um, try to explain a little bit. Um, first, I want to know uh, what we cannot say. We can't say um, we can't say we can disregard this part of the Bible because it's in the Old Testament. The New Testament has replaced it. That's, that doesn't work um, for many different reasons, uh, but mainly because Old Testament talks about God's abounding love just as well as the New Testament, and the New Testament also talks about God's judgment just as much as the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus talks about judgment more than anybody else, and he talks about hell more than anybody else in the harsher terms uh, than many people in the Bible. We can also say that this is an allegory for spiritual warfare because people, real people died in this conquest. We also cannot say um, that this has, told, this has never been told to the Israelites. The Israelites somehow misinterpreted um, God's command because God actually takes credit for this conquest in the Bible. So... These are things that we cannot say, but what can we say? I want you to think about it in certain contexts. One is this historical context. We have to understand that the Bible takes place, the history of the Bible takes place in the context of uh, real history. Uh, that uh, the, this language of wiping out everybody is actually uh, a fairly common language in the ancient Near Eastern warfare. Um, and we have to remember that Bible, the Bible is, uh, the, the history is taken in that context and it uses the language of history. But secondly, I want to make sure that there's no misunderstanding about what this war was. It was not a genocide, as people often say, that this was a genocidal war against the Can- uh, Canaanites. This wasn't about a race at all. If you read um, Joshua, this is the book that talks about the conquest in Canaan, it actually, it's a very curious thing. It starts with the salvation story. It actually starts in Joshua chapter 2 of the salvation story of Rahab, a Canaanite woman. And if you read the story carefully, she's not saved because she helps the Israelites. She's saved because she recognizes Yahweh God. She recognizes that Yahweh had delivered the Israelites out of, uh, out of Egypt, that her God in Canaan is a false God, and the God of, of the Israelites is the one true God. And also in chapter 1, if you look back, um, we, didn't, uh, we didn't have time to go through it um, last week, but in verses 22 to 26, it starts out with a story that's similar. Somebody who helps the Israelites and is included in the salvation. And not only that, in Judges chapter 1, uh, there's also the inclusion, the story of the Kenites in, being included into uh, Canaan, the, the tribe um, 
of Moses' father-in-law, who was a, clearly a Gentile. Gentiles are a part of that land, but it's only Gentiles that recognize Yahweh God. So this isn't about a race. It is about God and the true worship of one true God. It's that Canaanites, having seen what they have seen, do not recognize that Yahweh God is their true God. And then we see in clearly in chapter 2 and the rest of the Old Testament that actually there, God does not play favorites towards the Israelites. It's not, some people think that God is this special, I mean, Israelites are this special nation that gets all the favor from God. But actually, in chapter 2, we see God judging the Israelites, don't we? Actually, the rest of the book of Judges is all about the judgment that comes upon Israelites. They're saved for now. But actually, they will be judged later. And in fact, when it gets really bad, God brings the Assyrians and Babylonian Empire to come and destroy the, uh, destroy the nation of Israel. God does not play favorites. They were saved for the salvation of all people because God loves all people. God selected this nation to be his, his, uh, his people so that other people could be drawn into worship of Yahweh. And that leads us also to um, context of reading the, uh, God's judgment um, against Israelites um, in the context of God's justice. God's justice. In some ways, Canaanites, I, 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 I know I feel slightly uncomfortable saying this, but this is actually what the Bible says, that the Canaanites are getting what they deserve. Just as the Israelites will get what they deserve, and just as how at the end of history, when Jesus comes back, we will also get what we deserve in the judgment. The Canaanites, in, in some contexts, are being judged by their idolatry. Even in chapter 1, once again, we didn't have a chance to read this last week because of the time. But chapter 1, if you go back and uh, read chapter 1, verses 4, th- 4 through 7, we hear the story of Adonai Bezek, the Lord of Bezek. Um, and he, he says when he is judged, when he is killed, his thumb, big, uh, thumb and big toes cut off and he's eventually killed. He says to himself in verse 7 that I did this to 70 other kings and I am now getting what I deserve. He recognizes that the judgment that's coming upon him is a just judgment. But it's not just there. Um, If we go back to, once again, 400 years before this conquest, um, the promise made made to Abraham, when God makes this promise in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, there's this great, uh, curious verse there where God says, your descendants will not take over this land right now because the sins of Aram have not reached its full. What he's saying is, the sins have not reached its full. When it reaches its fullness, then your descendants will come and conquer this nation. He's saying that at that time, this is what they deserve. So this happens in the context of God's justice. But you might, um, once again, as well say that the New Testament is different. Jesus talked about mercy and, 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 and love. And once again, um, I want to point out that Jesus actually talks about hell more than anybody else, uh, anybody else in the Bible. In the New Testament, um, uh, it, it, it doesn't talk about uh, just love. Um, it talks about God's uh, justice and judgment in very scary terms. And this is just one passage from the New Testament, Hebrews 10. 
Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think those deserve to be punished who have trampled the Son of God underfoot, who have treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who have insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Old and the New Testament is very, very clear about God's judgment, the warnings, and his settled anger against sin. Now I want to go back to, once again, uh, our context of Judges chapter 2. What I think that we have to take away from this passage and from all of the Old Old and the New Testament is that sin of idolatry is a very serious sin. God's holiness burns against idolatry, against sin. Uh, And you might think that you don't worship idols because you don't bow down to images made out of wood and stone. I would like you to think about that once again. Israelites worship Baal and Ashtart in verses 13, as we are told. Baal was primarily a storm god, but because he was a storm god, he was also a fertility god. And Ashtart is the same, uh, the female version of that, fertility god. And fertility, if you think about the agri- uh, the um, uh, the farming nature of that uh, of that time, you can see why it was so important. Because you know, uh, my my dad um, had has uh, eight siblings. Um, that's because my dad's family are uh, they're farmers, and you needed back then. You need a lot of workers to work in the farm. It was important to your uh, um, your wealth that you had enough people working there. Um, not only that, it's the cattle. It's the fertility god uh, affects uh, ca- ca- cattle production, grain production, farming. It actually is directly related to wealth. They were worshiping wealth. They wanted a life of wealth. That's why they sacrificed Baal and Ashtart. And isn't that something that we all can relate to here in Hong Kong? We also forget how grievous idolatry actually is. God describes, um, God describes idolatry as prostitution. Prostitution. And one scholar says this is significant for many different reasons. One, it implies that this wasn't one-off thing like adultery. This isn't a one-off thing. This is a habitual thing that they were doing. Secondly, um, that the motive is not a casual um, thing, but it's personal gain. They're worshiping these idols for their gain because they have something to gain. Not only that, it also implies many sex partners, not just one. Whoever, whatever that we can worship so we can gain. And finally, um, the Israelites... It, it, uh, it pictures the Israelites as this callous and hardened people um, who, do, who, don't, who can't tell what's good and bad apart anymore because they're so used to sinning, so used to worshiping idols. And as much as I like to think that we are pristine people of God, I wonder how much 
of that is part of us. I can't shake off the image that we are serial idolaters, spiritual prostitutes. Well, <laughs> of course, the Bible talks about God's judgment um, and wrath in the context of God's anger as well. God's great love for us, even in this chapter, chapter 2. First, God warns the Israelites in verses 1 through 5, and people respond how, uh, they were, uh, how they were supposed to. They repent. They see people, uh, they, they weep, and they offer sacrifices to God in verse 4. But within a generation, the whole generation leaves Yahweh and do evil, follow other gods. So God judges them. God raises up uh, 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 these judges, but then they grow worse. And we're told of why God raised up the judges in verse 18. Every time there is a uh, Lord written in capital, that's uh, God's personal name, a uh, covenantal name, Yahweh. This is what it says in verse 18. Yahweh relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. What's surprising here is that the narrator does not speak of repentance. God doesn't raise up these judges and save them because these Israelites repented. God doesn't save them because the Israelites turned to God and looked to God for help. This is not what God's, why God raises up these judges. God saves them because purely out of compassion. Because God loves God's people and they, he, he sees people groaning even in his just judgment. What we see here is the tension between God's holiness, love, and, and, and God's love. God's justice and love. In fact, the whole book of Judges can be said to be about this tension. God judges out of anger, the settled anger, controlled anger. Um, because he's holy, he has to judge them. But at the same time, as he judges them, he, he loves his people and his heart breaks. And so God raises up a, a, a judge to save them. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And not just in the book of Judges, in the entire Old Testament. Judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. It sees us back and forth. Even in um, the exile later on, God is fed up and the Israel is, uh, as, a, as a nation, is destroyed. But even then, God promises, you know, there is a remnant and I will bring you back and I'll plant you back because you are my people. It sees us back uh, between God's love and compassion and justice um, out of his holiness that comes in uh, holiness. And ultimately, this is not resolved until the cross. On the cross, God's perfect justice is poured out. God demonstrates how angry he is at sin by sending his own son. And the picture that we are given, the, the, the face of Son of God dying on the cross is the sin of God, uh, is, is the display of God's holiness and wrath. But at the same time, we recognize that the Son of God dies on our behalf because God loves us, because God wants us to draw uh, to himself. 
And uh, um, we don't do a very good job, I think, of balancing this out in our life, do we? Sometimes, actually, people don't take sin very seriously. People think, you know, actually, people in the Bible, in Corinthians, why don't I sin more? Because, uh, in Romans, sorry, why don't I sin more so that grace might increase? Why, don't, why does it matter that I sin now? Because God has already forgiven me. But once again, if we look to the cross, that's not something that we could say. We look to the cross and we see that how horrible sin is. On the other hand, some people never forgive themselves because they're so focused on the sin um, and, and how horrible that actually is. And if we knew only of God's justice and holiness, we would never be able to forgive ourselves. But at the foot of the cross, that too is unthinkable thing to say. Because Jesus paid for our sins. If we don't forgive ourselves, when God has taken the penalty for us, we make a mockery of the cross. We have to forgive ourselves because God has taken that penalty for us. And this is something that we have to tell other people. The good news of the cross is something that we have to tell other people because sin is serious. Because God has made a way for people to be delivered. And finally, this passage also reminds us that we're in constant danger of forgetting how serious sin is, um, how God loves us, how great God's salvation is. Uh, for, all, for all of us. Israel repents in verse 4, but after a generation, they forget God. They walk away from God. And verse 10, um, we're told that they didn't know God at all. And this isn't too far from what's happened in the West, right? Uh, with, uh, in 1910, uh, 66% of uh, uh, Christians lived in Europe. Now it's about 25%. Uh, how can we guard against um, this? Um, I think Deuteronomy uh, warns us um, and tells us how to guard against this. After giving the Ten Commandments, God says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind and soul and strength. These commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk, to, talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your heads and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames, on your houses, and on your gates. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 8. Love the Lord your God with everything that you are. There has to be genuine love on your part. There has to be genuine love on your, uh, on your hearts. Uh, um, we need to love first in order to affect the people around us, especially our children, friends and family. And the advice is that talk about it all the time. Talk about it all the time. Um, when you're sitting at home around the dinner table, when you're traveling on holidays, before you go to sleep, after you get up in the breakfast table, whatever, whenever you're on business trips, it's got to be on our lips. And why is it that we talk about everything else, even within the church, everything else but our spiritual life, but what we just heard maybe in the sermon? To ever, uh, we talk about it, uh, uh, we never talk about it. There was an interesting article um, on a Gospel Coalition website called, The Church Was Great, Let's Not Talk About It. 
how the culture, even within the church, people don't talk about God. But the Deuteronomy, Moses says, we got to be talking about this all the time. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. It's got to be on our lips. And Moses um, talks about how also we have to make physical signs, physical reminders, something that's more tangible in our lives that that will remind us of the gospel. Tie them as symbols on your hand and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames and the houses, on, on, on your gates. Make symbols. Uh, wear your crosses. Um, come to church. Participate in baptism, which becomes a symbol of your death um, and resurrection with Christ. Participate in communion, which shows us of God's unconditional love for us in his body breaking and offering himself to anyone who will come to him. But most importantly, I think the biggest reminder for us is to live distinctly. Living your life distinctly will be a constant reminder for yourself that you are a saved people. The Israelites in this passage become completely comfortable in that world. Perhaps it's because they felt threatened that they wanted to fit in. Perhaps it's because they envied what the Canaanites had and they thought, well, if Canaanites are like this and they worship this God, maybe I should worship their gods as well. They forget that they were a saved people, a different, distinct people. It's always going to be a struggle for all of us to remember this salvation, to live differently, I know. How are we to be in this world and still be distinct in it? How much is okay? Anyway, at the end of the day, if you feel too comfortable here, that's not right. There's something wrong. In this fallen world, we must feel uncomfortable because we are made for a different God. We're made for a much better world than this. Um, we're going to now come to the time of communion, and we're going to sing um, in, our, as a, as in, in, in offering um, song, um, Blessed Assurance. And the chorus goes like this. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. If we make the salvation story, and if we are praising God all the day long, we will be able to live differently and remember God's holiness, but as well as God's salvation and love. So let's sing. Let's stand. Let's offer our gifts. Um, This is especially for the church family. And as we give our gifts... Let's make the sign of giving of giving of our lives as well.